Hello and welcome to another episode of Afghan Affairs Podcast. This is Sabal Brahimi. Today we'll be discussing the US-Taliban deal and the Afghan peace process. I'm joined by Professor Thomas Johnson, who is a faculty member of the National Security Affairs Department at the Naval Postgraduate School. Professor Johnson has written extensively on Afghanistan and most recently has focused on the Taliban narratives, uh, the elections in Afghanistan and uh, the whole uh, issue of uh, counterinsurgency and uh, counterterrorism. Just a side note uh, to our listeners that this uh, podcast was recorded prior to the inauguration of uh, President Biden. My first question would be, where are we in the Afghan peace process, uh, Professor Johnson? Well, I think that we're at a tremendous standstill. Um, you know, last in, in October, I'm sorry, in November, Zami Kalalazad suggested there had been a historical agreement made between the two parties. That's Kabul government and the Taliban. And there was a three-page memo that goes along with that. Well, we've never seen the three-page memo. At least I haven't seen it. And it turns out the historical agreement was that the Taliban and Kabul had agreed on an agenda. So after two and a half months, they had agreed on an agenda. No substantive issues at all. And then two weeks later, the Taliban say, uh, suggested that they wanted to break away from the Doha talks for at least 20 days to discuss amongst themselves the agenda in Doha. So it's things like that that just don't make a lot of sense to me. But the bottom line to me, and I can get into this in a great deal if you'd like, is that before Doha ever took place, the Taliban suggested clearly that they had two non-negotiable demands. The first and most important non-negotiable demand was the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate. The second was the institutionalization of their radical Diobandi view of Sharia law. Now, of course, reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate it means the destruction of the present government and the constitution in Afghanistan. So if those are the non-negotiable demands, Kabul will never agree with that. I think that what's going on right now, uh, and we get into this in a lot more detail, but I think what's going on right now is that the Taliban are waiting to see if President-elect Biden is going to honor the, quote, peace agreement that the Taliban made with Zami Khalizad. And let me just, I'd like to talk at this at some great length, but Professor William Malley, who's a diplomatic historian and a, a very prominent Afghanistan scholar, recently suggested, and I'm going to quote him, I'm hard pressed to think of a more defective agreement in the history of diplomatic engagement than the one signed on February 29th. Maybe the, maybe the September 1938 Munich Agreement 
maybe the January 1973 Paris Agreement on Vietnam, uh, but not many others. And Professor Malley is speaking the truth. You know, the, the initial peace negotiations that were supposed to be going on with Kalaozad were not peace negotiations at all. Mm-hmm. They, were, they, were, they were negotiations for a phased withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. The number one goal the Taliban has always suggested. In fact, up until a few years ago, the Taliban said they would never even enter negotiations with any foreign troops in the country. And if you take the other, you know, the other three things that occurred at, uh, from that September 29th agreement, you'll see it was the release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners, some of their best fighters and commanders. I mean, Ghani was extremely concerned about this. He didn't even know about this before it was made. Uh, the second was that Al-Qaeda, you know, Al-Qaeda, Taliban would not let Al-Qaeda use Afghanistan as a springboard for their international terror- terrorism. That's almost impossible to deploy, uh, mm-hmm. employ. And the third and the, and the fourth or last one, of course, was, you know, they would start to consider intra-Afghan talks. I'm very skeptical. Uh, I think so it sounds like you're very skeptical of the U.S. Talib deal. Uh, uh, well, and, it was, but what what would have been a what would have been an alternative than this deal then? Well, I mean, the U.S. Congress asked Kalalazad at least on one occasion to come and brief them on the deal, and he never showed up. I find, you know, there's one thing, and you've probably seen this in some of my writings. You know, during those negotiations, we reach new highs in deaths in Afghanistan, and especially the killing of innocent Afghans. And, you know, the UN reports uh, for two years now, the U.S. and Kabul are responsible for more civilian deaths than the Taliban. And, of course, that relates to the fact that the United States has a very small footprint presently in Afghanistan, and it's supposed to be reduced to 2,500 military personnel by January 15th. So we have relied on air power. There's never been an insurgency in history that's been defeated primarily through air power. And actually, for us to pursue operations through the air is exactly what the Taliban wants. Because if you strip away the layers of the onion, the Taliban have always had one military strategy, and that is to force the United States into making mistakes. And when you when a 500-pounder goes astray in a rural village and an Afghan, innocent Afghan woman, child, or man is killed, you lose that village forever, or at least for a long time. And that's exactly what the Taliban wanted us to do. They also wanted us to chase around basically madrasa students and, and that, who would also go into the, into the villages and just pray for us to start air operations. So we made numerous tactical errors. But the point is, during the negotiations with the Taliban and Kalalazad, you know, he initially asked, hey, would you consider a ceasefire? And they said, absolutely not. And he should have walked away. I mean, a peace agreement without a peace, a peace agreement or peace negotiations without a ceasefire is an oxymoron. There has never been a successful peace negotiation since World War II that has not been accompanied 
by a ceasefire. So if the Taliban is really interested in the ceasefire, why do they keep their hands off uh, uh, a ceasefire like it's burning coal? That's the question. Mm. So I think right now the Taliban is playing a waiting game. They want to see how Biden's going to respond because, you know, theoretically, all U.S. forces are supposed to be out by May yeah. of next year. If you agree with the, quote, peace negotiations that Kalalazad had with the Taliban, which, of course, weren't peace negotiations at all. So, but Professor, you're saying that Khalilzad should have walked away if the Taliban didn't accept the ceasefire. Absolutely. But yeah, then, then it would have meant more, more bombings. You know, then would have meant, it would have meant more attacks by the United States. More attacks. But if the Taliban were serious, you know, he, they they twice agreed to a reduction in violence. What a crazy concept! Does that mean instead of killing two hundred people a day, they're going to only kill a hundred? They know my point is very simple. When Kalalazad was meeting with the Taliban and seeing the massive destruction that was going on during his, quote, peace negotiations, he should have turned to the Taliban and said, I'm going to break this off unless you call for a ceasefire. Well, the Taliban might have said, OK, go ahead, break it off. We're going to continue our jihad. So right, then- of course. And they're, and they're continuing their jihad right now. This is all political theater in my mind. Doha is complete political theater. It took two and a half months to come up with the agenda. They they won't they even they they've got a tentative list of substantive uh, issues they want to talk about. But then after this historic agreement that Kalalazad talked about last month in a three page memo, the Taliban immediately walked away from Doha and said that we have to discuss uh, our agenda within with with our people. So there was even an agreement with that. Wasn't that like a mutual thing between the Afghan uh, delegation from Kabul and the Taliban delegation from Quetta and elsewhere, that they would go back to like Islamabad and elsewhere? That's new to me if it, it was. All I heard and read in the unclassified sources in the public media was the Taliban decided to take a, a 20-day break to discuss amongst themselves the agenda issue. Yeah, my reading though was that because they, they both the delegation from Kabul and the delegation from Quetta and slash whatever other cities in Pakistan, they um, both jointly issued this uh, press release saying that we're going to go back and talk to our leadership in Kabul. Well, and I mean, but show the hypocrisy. You know, why would Kalalazad, it was major news in the United States, when he said that we come to a the first time a historical agreement between the two. And then both of them walk away and say, we have to discuss it more. I mean, that's the type of hypocrisy that's been going on ever since Kalalazad started his negotiations in September 2018. And I just, I find it very, very problematic. What was the alternative then? The alternative was if the Taliban is interested in peace, to immediately call for a ceasefire. Everything is driven by that. Peace negotiations, and I'll repeat, and please argue with me if you'd like, but peace negotiations without a ceasefire is an oxymoron. But if if a group wants peace, and and they'll have a ceasefire. Of course, Kabul's calling for a ceasefire all the time. Mm -hmm. But why don't we force the Taliban into a ceasefire? You You know, we treat... Afghanistan 
almost as a U.S. colony. Even though, the, even with the intra-Afghan talks that are going on in Doha, where well, they're not going on right now, I mean, the United States was still playing a major role. But the United States would not even allow Kabul to sit at the table. You know, when he, uh, when uh, Kalalazad was was negotiating, in quotation marks, with the Taliban. I mean, Afghanistan is not a colony of the United States. For Kalalazad to make a deal with the Taliban that they're going to release 5,000 prisoners, I find absolutely outrageous. I, if I was Ghani, I'd be very upset too. You know, because you know, we, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be negotiating the future of Kabul. We should be on the sidelines and making suggestions to both sides. But for us to, you know, come up with the first, quote, peace negotiations with the Taliban, I think was absurd for two reasons that I've already mentioned. One, it wasn't a peace negotiation. It was basically a, uh, steps for a phased withdrawal of U.S. troops. And two, it didn't involve Kabul at all. No, I'm sure that a lot of Afghans also um, have this uh, view that uh, why we weren't involved and why do you have to make all these uh, concessions especially you know afghan afghans who were in power uh, but they have made these concessions uh, such as releasing 5000 plus uh, uh, taliban prisoners who actually most of them reportedly have rejoined the, the jihad oh yeah they uh, all have it's just like when mullah zakir came back you know mullah zakir came back with what we would call the congressional medal of honor because he was released from gitmo and he immediately went back and and met with berater who at the time was you know berater's brother he was named berater by omar but he was running the day-to-day -day operations it's mm -hmm. interesting that when you know and, and, and let me let me talk about this for a second. It's very interesting that in the spring of 2009, according to the you know open source media, both U.S. and Pakistani intelligence picked up that there was a, that there were some important Taliban in a in a house in, in Kabul or I'm sorry in Karachi, and they both invaded it. And to their surprise, they got Berater and Mullah Zakir. Baradar, you mean? Baradar, Baradar, Ghani Baradar. Yeah, Mullah Barader, Barader. Okay. Barader, Barader. Barader, and of course, seven days later, Mullah Zakir was released outside of Peshawar, and Barader, Barader has been in was in the Afghan prison for eight years until he was released a year and a half ago to really start to lead the negotiations leading up to Doha. You mean in Pakistani prison? In pa yeah, what did I say? Afghan. Yeah, no, he's in Pakistani prison. And the yeah. reason he was in Pakistani prison for so long was at the time of his arrest, as I mentioned, he's a Papalzai Durrani. He was trying to start negotiations, secret negotiations with Karzai. And the last thing, especially at that time, 2009, the last thing that Pakistan would stand for were peace negotiations occurring outside of their venue. Because Pakistan has to have a major say in 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 the peace negotiations. Um, uh, so right now, what's happening, uh, professors? You said you don't agree with the term that you know with the idea that Taliban are increasing violence in order to gain leverage uh, over the negotiation table. What does that mean? Like then, why they are they are resorting to violence if they're not? They never stopped resorting to violence. Mm. I mean, you know, 
during the time that Kalawazad was meeting with the Taliban, there were some of the there was some biggest and largest violent acts that have had occurred since two thousand and one. They'd mm-hmm. never stopped their jihad. They didn't stop fighting. What Kalawazad tried to finally get them to do to, was to reduce, you know, violence, a reduction in violence. And we all know what that meant. You know, instead of mass killings, maybe only 100 people were killed a day. But I get back to the simple fact, if the Taliban is interested in peace, they would allow for a ceasefire while these negotiations are going on. But I think the Taliban basically now are playing a waiting game. I would not be surprised if they never got into serious negotiations again. But a lot of this depends, you know, uh, we presently have uh, 45, or I'm sorry, 5,000 soldiers in country. And on January 15th, we'll have 2,500. It's going to be very interesting to see if President-elect Biden accepts the, quote, negotiations that Kalalazad made with the Taliban. If he did that, then the t- Taliban can just wait it out. Uh, we'll be out by, you know, May. And then the Taliban will take over the country militarily. So then in that case, what what should the United States do? Well, it's going to be very hard for the United States to increase troops. Um, you know, the, the other thing about Biden is that he had major differences uh, with President Obama when, for example, when President Obama you know, announced his surge at his famous December 2009 speech at West Point Military Academy. He talked for a surge of about 32,000 forces into Afghanistan. Biden was really against that and made, made it known because Biden did not think, and I agree with him, that counterinsurgency was ever going to su- succeed in Afghanistan. First of all, you, you know, we try to conduct counterinsurgency from a forward operating base within and of itself, an absurd idea. But he never thought that the coin was going to survive. So he thought that we could keep fewer source uh, uh, military personnel in the country and focus on counterterrorism. And I believe that's what's going to happen when when Biden comes in. He's going to see that we only have 2,500 troops. I think that he'll, he'll leave them there um, for a few months to serve as a, a you know, a counterterrorism force. Um, and, you know, and if he, and if he uh, agrees or lets Let's the let's the September 29th or the uh, I'm sorry the February 29th agreement you know true up all the troops would be out in, in early May. Mm-hmm. But 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 uh, if uh, President elect Biden would want to keep the 2,500 beyond uh, May, uh, well he can't do that if he agree unless he says that the the agreement that was made on September 29th is null and void. I hope that he does that. Uh, or could, uh, I mean, uh, does does it have to be null and void, or it could be renegotiated? Why would you want to renegotiate anything with the Taliban? They're not neg- they're not negotiating in a sincere way. You know, I mean, the historic yeah. agreement of having an agenda, and then both sides say, "Ah, we need twenty days to go back and talk to our other people." I need what the agenda is. They haven't even they they've got a tentative list of substantive issues, and ceasefire is on that. But I, you know, I mean, my my theory is, and it's only a theory, but I think there's a very strong 
um, possibility that the Taliban is just going to wait out the U.S. But they're surely not going to do anything more in negotiating until they find out what Biden says about Afghanistan. And you've got to remember that Biden was never for nation building. He was never for counterinsurgency. He was always for counterterrorism. And if he wants to continue with 2,500 or 3,000, you know, special force, U.S. special forces who can do an awful lot of damage uh, to a terrorist organization, um, then, then he, maybe he won't agree with the uh, negotiations and, and the, quote, treaty that was made, um, you know, uh, on, September, on February 29th. Yeah, uh, so... What I'm trying to get at, uh, Professor, here is that, uh, you know, the deal uh, is seen, you know, by some in the U.S. as a success story. And Please educate me. Who sees it as a success story? Uh, a lot of people, a lot of commentators, like I don't want to name them, but uh, you see that they say this is the best option we, we have right now. And like the, the Taliban wouldn't even want to talk to the Afghan government. But now we have a deal with them and they're talking to the Afghan government and they're recognizing them as a site, even, even deal. you know. It's just not a peace deal. It's, it's mm. a deal for a phased withdrawal of U.S. troops. The number one thing that Mullah Omar had always wanted, in fact, Omar for years said there would never be a negotiation until all foreign forces were left, were gone out of the country. And now they're going to get that. Yeah, so, definitely. So, so that I that I get. You know, this is a political deal at the end of the day. But it's also, I I, I don't know. Uh, it could also be seen as a, as a peace deal between the United States or a withdrawal deal between the United States and the Taliban. The fact that the U.S. troops are not being attacked by the Taliban. Right. Since, that's since, true. There has yeah. that's the one good thing that came out of the quote talks with uh, Kalal Azad and the Taliban. The Taliban have stopped attacking. For, U.S. forces, but they've been using sticky bombs and attacking all kinds of other prominent Afghans for the last couple of weeks. So, so, so for, for, from the U.S. perspective, it's a good deal for them for now, whether it's going to stick or not. But for Afghans, it has been a bad deal, uh, or it has been uh, nothing. Like it is not. Uh, well, you can't you can't say nothing because the Taliban uh, um, has agreed to at least get into some sort of talks you know even though like the pro the, the progress has been very very slow but i what i'm trying to get to is like the alternative you know you're saying that biden is not going to probably be looking into a nation build, building or you know a sizable uh, number of uh, troops on the ground then then yeah absolutely i mean you've yeah. got to understand that biden's you know, the beginning of his administration is completely going to be devoted to, to COVID-19 and the terrible economic situation our country is in. Mm -hmm. You know, foreign policy will play, will play a role, but it's going to be a minor role. He's, got, he's forced to focus on domestic issues. And remember also uh, when uh, Vice President-elect uh, Harris uh, was in the Senate, she argued vehemently 
for the United States to completely withdraw from Afghanistan. So, yeah, I can understand if Americans want us to completely withdraw, they might think there's been good progress. But I think any type of withdrawal has to be systematic and it has to be guaranteed of certain things. And, you know, right now, none of those things have been guaranteed by, by the Taliban. So who is going to guarantee the like who is going to who is going to make sure that the uh, the 20 years of work hard work by Afghans by Americans by the Europeans uh, is not going to go away and and overnight uh, when the US leaves and everything else collapses I I don't know I'm not sure there's anybody you know I mean you know just the non-negotiable demands of the Taliban It suggests to me that these peace talks can never agree. Uh, and on top of that, you know, not allowing for a ceasefire. I think the ta Taliban know that they're in a very, very good position right now. They're going to wait and see what Biden does. And they might just wait out the clock until early May when all U.S. forces are to be withdrawn from Afghanistan if Biden agrees with the initial uh, September 29th agreement between you know, slash U.S. And, and the Taliban. Uh, don't you think that they also will uh, be gambling this? Because oh. if, uh, let's say, uh, they wait out and they start a civil, well, there, there, is, there is a civil war, but a full-on civil war where they try to uh, take over the government by force. And then let's say they become the, they reenact the uh, Islamic Emirate. Uh, where what what kind of support they would get from the international community? The international community would say no. The Americans, well, hopefully, will say no to funding them. You know, funding their projects and whatnot. Uh, Pakistan and China will fund their products. The, the Pakistan and China, you mean, uh, will fund the the state, the Taliban yeah. state? Yeah, I mean, you know, Pakistan and China are very close right now with the Belt and Road Initiative and the economic and the. Uh, China-Pakistan economic corridor. I mean, there's actually Chinese that are, right now are working some of the best agricultural land in Pakistan. So it might not be above board, but Pakistan, I think, with the help of Chinese, will 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 solve that. You know, and China has 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 already purchased some of the best mineral, some of the best land with minerals um, on it. At least we think that they're on it. Um, uh, from Afghanistan, and and they'd like to get those minerals too. Um, so I, I just, I think that you're right. I think a civil war will break out, and it's going to be a massive civil war because the Taliban have, you know, between 15 and 20 percent of the, the Afghan population are now supporting the Taliban. And if you read Mao. Mao, who was the great theoretician on insurgency, he said to be successful, there were two things that were necessary. You had to have at least 15% of the population um, agreeing with your position or supporting you. And the second thing he said that, and this is the critical thing, is that the government has to have less than 80% legitimacy. Now, do you think Ghani and this coalition government with Abdullah Abdullah has 80% you know, uh, legitimacy with the Afghan population? No, it's not even close. So, uh, you know, those two forces are, are also going to make the civil war very, very difficult. And I, I just fear it. I mean, it keeps me up at night because there's going to be thousands of Afghans killed.
Mm. So do you, do you have any suggestions for avoiding that kind of scenario? Yeah. Have a ceasefire and have real peace negotiations. It's that simple. Uh, if it would have been that simple, then we would have had a ceasefire already. No, the because the Taliban doesn't want a ceasefire. So that's they what I'm saying. If they don't want a ceasefire, how are we going to make them to have a ceasefire? I'm saying if they're serious, we, we get them to peace, have a ceasefire. I mean, there's a reason that uh, uh, Prime Minister Khan went to uh, Afghanistan a few weeks ago, the first Pakistani prime minister to ever visit Kabul. I think he was trying to talk the Ghani government into accepting some of the demands from the Taliban. Um, now, none of those talks have been made public, but that's that's my hypothesis. But, you know, the Taliban has always have always stated that there's two dynamics that could occur in Afghanistan. One, we could come up with some type of negotiation and maybe have initially a coalition government or two, we'll take the country militarily. Mm. And with the U.S. gone, while there are some good ANDSF forces, they're not going to be able to stand up to the Taliban. Do you think that the U.S. has a more responsibility to, to stick around uh, or some sort of responsibility to stick around and make sure that there is some sort of a deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban? I'm not sure I'd use the word deal, but I think the United States, after spending a trillion dollars and losing 25, you know, 100 military personnel and I, you can't even, I can't even tell you how many contractors have been lost, that we must, I think that we must have some type of withdrawal that is systematic and based on certain types of facts occurring. Um, and, and, you know, and they could be long term. I think that what the, the Taliban is going to want is they want to, the, the, you know, there's, they've also been inconsistent on this because the, Now, whenever a coalition government has been mentioned, they, they've, quote, they've actually cited the tremendous corruption in the Ghani regime. And they say they won't ever have a coalition government with, with Ghani. So there's all these variables going on that lead to the, the major fact that the Taliban has always believed that they were going to take over the country militarily. And they were going to do that as soon as the international forces are out. And, you know, there's there's a very strong dynamics that suggest that's what's going to happen. So so regardless, uh, that's what's going to happen. And you think that the United States and the European Union and everyone else who are involved, should they just call it a day or leave? Like, so I want to get into that. I don't know what they can do. I really don't know. You know, the, the EU had done some. I don't know what they could do. I don't know what the U.S. can do. These are supposed to be intra-Afghan talks, and they're not going very well in my mind. Are you in the camp that uh, in the in the camp of uh, let's let's leave now? No, I'm not. I've suggested numerous times during this conversation that we. Should, if we're going to withdraw, it should be tied to certain types of things happening. Condition-based withdrawal. Condition-based withdrawal. And I think it is that, you know, that there's a peaceful building of a coalition government between the present government 
and the Taliban, although the Taliban have stated on numerous occasions that they don't want anything to do with Ghani. And that that also, and I don't think this is a, is a major concern um, because, you know, while we've had a number of U.S. reports that have come out recently and said that the Taliban are extremely close to al-Qaeda still, I, I just don't know how, uh, how valid that is. Um, they're surely not playing the role that they did, you know, 10 or 15, 15 years ago. Um, so I, I'm just in a quandary. And I'm in a quandary because of what the Taliban have publicly stated. I mean, they said that they had two non-negotiable demands. And both those demands basically mean the end of the Kabul regime. Mm -hmm. I mean, eventually, I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, a new new political arrangement, a new political system, probably a modified. Uh, you earlier mentioned that they're insisting on like the Islamic Emirate. But I, from what I'm seeing, they have kind of dropped that, you know, the, the specific term of, you know, Islamic Emirate. But they do want a puritanical regime. They're playing semantic games. Mm -hmm. The Taliban are, are very smart. If, you know, this isn't the Taliban of, 2000, of 1994 or 1996 or 2001. This is a very smart Taliban. When they went into hiding, when they went into refuge after their, their regime fell, went into Pakistan, I know for a fact that major Taliban uh, personnel were reading Mao. They were me reading Che Guevara. They were reading about insurgencies, historical insurgencies. And I think that they have a real plan. That's not necessarily the plan that they're, they're suggesting, you know, all the time in public. But, they, but what they have said in public, you know, I'll repeat, you know, bring back the emirate and institute our, our view of Sharia law. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different Afghanistan that we presently have. True, true. Uh, um, well, I and I think that there will be resistance, and people are not just people are not just going to give up to the Taliban. That's for sure. It's going to be a massive civil war, like you, yeah. you sort of suggested a little earlier. That's what I think is going to happen. Mm. Uh, and do, do, what do you think about the regional actors, regional players such as Pakistan and Iran, Russia? Like, what could the United States do to them or with them? probably reach reach an agreement or because the Taliban, as you said, they took refuge in Pakistan. And, you know, right now they're in Pakistan trying to talk to their elders, the, negotiation, the negotiations right. team. There's another thing that you have to keep in mind. Historically, there's never been a, uh, a, an insurgency that has succeeded without a refuge uh, immediately uh, next door in a different country. Um, so that refuge is very important. In fact, that's the reason that the Afghan Taliban broke away from the uh, TTP or the Pakistani Taliban in 2007. When the TTP, you know, uh, started their activities in SWAT and attacking other uh, Pakistani military bases, you know, Omar, you know, uh, stated he wanted nothing to do with it. And he wanted nothing to do with that because he didn't want to have any challenges to his stay in uh, Pashtunabad, which is where the Taliban are, right outside of Quetta. I've been there. It's an amazing place. Um, 
So I mean, there's so many things. I think the, I, to answer your question directly, I think the Pakistan will covertly support the Taliban. I think China will too. I think there's a, gr- a good possibility, especially with, especially with our deteriorating relationships with Russia, that Russia might support the Taliban in a covert way. I think India will come in and support, um, uh, uh, you know, Kabul. And there, you know, the worst scenario, of course, is a proxy war. Well, I think Biden, like I said, he's got two. He's got basically two routes to take. You know, he he can uh, he can say that I'm not going to agree with the Khalilzad Taliban quote peace treaty, and we're going to withdraw from that, and maybe we'll renegotiate, but we're going to keep a small number of military personnel, the the present you know, two and a half thousand in Afghanistan to serve as a counterterrorism force. And we'll also keep air power there. And those two things can be very powerful in in what happens. Uh, But, you know, don't expect any nation building under Biden because he was always against it and he'll be against it, especially, I mean, people don't recognize how dire our economy is right now. And, you know, he's got the dollars are going to be focused at domestic relief for the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be thrown out of their homes at the end of the year. Their unemployment has already been in, you know, and here in California, we have a stay at home order where people can't work. So you can expect Biden to to focus initially on these domestic severe domestic problems in the states and Afghanistan's going to take us be a sideshow but the key thing to watch again and I can end with this is will he accept what Khalilzad negotiated in quotation marks with the Taliban if he accepts that the game's over we're out of there in early May that was the end of this episode thank you so much for tuning in have a good day and have a good night wherever you are